Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Ed Engel, and he'll be answering your most important questions on tying and fishing small flies. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Ed a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address on the form on our homepage, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Ed Engel about tying and fishing small flies. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They've been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. That's BigSkyInflatables.com. Before we introduce Ed, I'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Ed's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Just click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away copies of Ed's books, both Tying Small Flies and Fishing Small Flies, courtesy of Stackpole Books. If you'd like to know more about what Stackpole has to offer, go to stackpolebooks.com, and you can see all the books that they are publishing in the fly fishing world. Now, here's how you can win. You've got to be the first person to answer the question or question. Sometimes I do a two-part question. We ask at the end of the show, and the question will be about something that Ed and I talk about during the show. So just submit your answer along with your name and location using that text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, and uh, if you take good notes, maybe you'll win one of Ed's books. We're going to do a first and second place winner tonight, so uh, there's two chances to, to win Ed's books. Our guest tonight is Ed Engel. Ed was born in Virginia where he grew up fishing for bass, bluegill, crappie, and other warm water species. It wasn't long after he moved to Colorado and discovered fly fishing and has been an avid fly fisher ever since. He's fly fished throughout the continental U.S., Alaska, Mexico, Chile, Argentina, and Europe for a variety of game fish species with a special emphasis on trout. As a fly fisherman, Ed has especially interested in small fly tactics and techniques. His small fly fishing Research has taken him to many of the West's famous tailwaters and to spring creeks across the country. He's also 
dedicated to fly fishing small streams and high country lakes for wild trout. Ed balances out his interest in the small side of fly fishing with an avid pursuit of king salmon on the fly. Ed's articles and photographs have appeared in Fly Fisherman Magazine, Fly Rod and Reel, American Angler, Trout, Warm Water Fly Fishing, Fly Tire, Saltwater Fly Fishing, Angler's Journal, Sports Afield, Fly Fishing Magazine, and Gray Sporting Journal. He's also authored several books, including Fly Fishing the Tailwaters, Seasonal, A Life Outside, Splitting Cane, Conversations with Bamboo Rod Makers, Tying Small Flies, Fishing Small Flies, and Trout Lessons. Past positions include Southwest Field Editor for Fly Fisherman Magazine, Outdoor Editor for the Colorado Spring Sun, Columnist for Fly Tire Magazine, Columnist for Warm Water Fly Fishing Magazine, and Contributing Writer for American Angler. Ed, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Hi. Hi, Roger. That's quite the resume, Ed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got tired reading it, huh? Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> You've had to wait a lot of streams to acquire all those uh, all those uh, items on your resume. That's for sure. No, I, I've been lucky to work for a lot of those magazines. It's yeah, it's all been a good experience for me. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and transferred into you know books and so forth that you've written, which is great. So we're gonna you know we got lots of good questions tonight, um, and um, gonna try to tap into that fly fishing brain of yours and uh, see if we can't help people learn a little bit more about small flies and how to fish them. Sound good? Ted? Yes, I'm here. Oh, you're still there. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm here. Okay. Uh, first up, uh, Scott Nelson, and this is, I just thought, a good one to start things off in Portland, Oregon. He says, hi, Ed. Concerning the image of you and the large fist to the left of the web page, he's talking about our website, what size fly was that caught on? And when you say small flies, what is the most common size? Thanks. Well, the large fish was obviously caught on a big fly. That's a king salmon in Alaska. And I don't remember exactly, but it's probably about a one-aught hook. And uh, <laughs> it was on a pink bunny fly. And, and the word up there is when they say what color fly to use, it's pink, pink, pink. And pink. that's yeah. where that fish came from. Yeah. And yeah. when we're talking about small flies, Sort of the the break point anymore is about size 18 and smaller is what's considered a small fly. When I got into this, 16s were considered small, but it gets a little smaller every year. But I'd say anything 18 or smaller is a small fly. How far down do you tie? I mean, is it necessary? I tie down to I tie down to 32s. In terms of practicality, it's a little bit different. I I mean. I tie 32s because I want to see if I can catch a fish on them. In terms of practicality, uh, anything below a size 22 fly, you'll continue to get strikes. You may not land all the fish that you hook. I think you can be pretty, pretty effective uh, down to 22s or 24s for hooking and landing the fish that you hook. So that really becomes the problem then is um – uh, without small a hook, especially into a big fish and trying to get them in quickly. Uh, I know somebody asked a question later. We'll get to it later in the show about the best ways to do, you know, that um, as far as, uh, you know, actually uh, bringing a fish in and landing it. So um, we'll right. hit that a little later. Uh, Dan in uh, Abingdon, uh, Illinois, asked, uh, for tying small flies, do you recommend a rotary device or just a standard tying device? Uh 
I use a standard vise. I can rotate the head on the vise and look at the fly, but I don't think you need a, a traditional rotary vise for a small fly, but a, a vise that allows you to sort of turn it and look at the what, what you're tying when you're done, I think is useful. Yeah, yeah, see both sides of it uh, easily. Yeah. Yeah, and um, Dan in Miami asked, uh, small flies with small heads usually call for very fine thread. What threads are strong for the size? Uh, that's an interesting question, and I've been studying threads. There's a bunch of threads now on the market, and almost any thread that's small enough to use on small flies is obviously going to have a, a less of a, a breaking strength, but I think you do well. The Vivas threads are pretty good. The Vivas 18-aught, the Vivas 14-aught, they're all average or slightly above average for breaking strength. So that's what I'd go with. Davis, huh? Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, what are your uh, – this is Martin Coleman in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. He says, what are your tips for tying smaller flies that match the hat uh, and not losing them when they come off the vise? Um, and then can you – that's question number one. Let's hit that first. So evidently he has problems uh, – getting them out of the vise and into his box. So any, any tips on desktop management there? Yeah, I don't have that problem, but when they do pop out of the vise, I mean, if they pop out of the vise, a magnet will usually find them. That's, oh, that's yeah. if at least if that's, if I'm answering the question that he asked, I and I think I am, that's, I just have a magnet where I find them. And, and push it around and, uh, and yeah. they pop, yeah, good idea. Um, and uh, maybe a magnet under your vice so that when it falls down, it goes right to the magnet. Uh, uh, that might be an idea, too. Um, uh, he also asked, can you discuss selecting materials that are proportional in the amount of material for tying smaller flies? Uh, yeah, materials for small flies, the whole trick to tying small flies is coming up with materials that'll that you can use on these small hooks that are in proportion to it. A lot of the synthetics that you can get now work really great. In terms of dubbing, my rule of thumb is, and pretty much actually for any kind of materials, my rule of thumb is take what you think you need and cut it in half, and that's probably about right. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, you just... The tendency is going to be to always overdress these small flies, and the trick is to just take a wisp of, of dubbing if you're going to dub the, the fly in terms of materials, uh, crystal flash, any of the synthetics, get the smaller sizes. And, and a lot of this stuff's being made in pretty small sizes now, so it's not as hard as it used to be. What about selecting hackle? What do you mean? Uh, is it hard to find hackle that small? Um, no, hackle is, it's amazing. These genetic necks that, that are available now, you can pull a size 32 hackle off some genetic necks now that's an inch and a half, an inch and three quarters long. When I first started tying small flies, you were lucky to get a half or a three quarter inch size 18. Genetic hackles changed everything. I, yeah. I mean, uh, this made it really nice tying small flies. I know Whiting uh, has really dialed that stuff in, the scientific side of things. Um, 
And I would say spend the money. Spend, spend the, the money. money yeah. Get a decent neck. Uh, all of a sudden, your flies will just they'll be so much easier to tie, and you get a lot of feathers on those necks, so it's worth it. Yeah, 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 good. Um, we had a, a question come in here on the Internet, Andy Cordova in Reno. He says, when you get down to sizes 18 to 22, how important are distinct patterns? Won't generic flies of different color work just as well? Sounds like I think that's not matching the hatch or something. Yeah. I think that depends on uh, what you're fishing to. There's some hatches where you've got to match them pretty close. There's some midge hatches that a generic fly probably won't work. And uh, I think you'll always catch fish, you know, like an, a size atom, a size 22 atoms will always catch fish. But if you want to dial it in a little finer, maybe catch more fish or maybe catch that larger fish that's been eluding you, then you may want to you, you imitate more closely what it is that's hatching. And to me, that's the fun of it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, getting that uh, and making those flies look uh, perfect at that small size. Um, Ray Treadway in Littleton, Colorado, asked, do you recommend a, a special hook to compensate for the reduced gap when tying small flies? And what about an angle offset for the hook point? Uh, angle offset's good on hooks. And I've, I've been looking into hooks lately, and one of the things I've found is there actually are some smaller fly hooks uh, that are available now that, that have a larger gap. Some of the semi, some of the, the curved hooks, the circular hooks like a TMC 2488 has a, has a wider gap to it. I'm trying to remember the name of a hook that I just looked at that uh, also has a, a wider hook. I'll have to figure that out as we go along. I actually might have some laying around here. But, uh, yeah, very Voss hooks. Very Voss has a, a wide-gapped hook that's pretty good for small flies. I think I read recently that it's it's not good to bend the hook to get a, a wider gap, but that weakens the hook. Is that something you found? I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't bend it. I, I might offset them a little bit. And some of these hooks, like uh, Gamakatsu's come, come out with a hook that's made offset. And the old Partridge, uh, Vince Marinaro K1A, had an offset point as part of the design of the hook. So if you can find a hook where it's already been manufactured, that way you're probably better off than bending it. I wouldn't open the hook up, though. Yeah, yeah. Let the yeah. fish do that. Let <laughs> <laughs> the fish do that. There you go. <laughs> then, yeah, you'll have yeah. a, then you'll have a story to tell. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Okay, Ed uh, Constantini uh, in Wisconsin writes in, and he says, uh, as my dexterity wanes with age, do you see any downside to tying a smaller body on a larger hook, for example, a size 20 or 22 on an 18 hook? Uh, I don't see any disadvantage to that. I notice that that's the way a lot of people start off tying small flies. They just tie a smaller fly on a larger hook, and then they go through a phase where they tie them on hooks that are in proportion. But I think if you're having trouble seeing those smaller hooks, uh, that's a good idea. 
just tie a, a half shank length smaller fly on the on the bigger hook. You'll be fine, and, and then you've got a wider gap too, which we were talking about a few minutes right. ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's uh, let's take our first break right now, and then we'll um, we'll come back back and talk more about the tying aspect of flies. And uh, folks, if you have any uh, questions, uh, write them in, and uh, we'll try to address them uh, tonight as we go through. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing, and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They're well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in the pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jackraval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. That's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Ed Engel about tying and fishing small flies. If you'd like to ask Ed a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and send us your question in that form, and uh, we'd love to get them answered tonight. Okay, Ed, um, more questions here. Uh, Kevin in uh, Plainfield, Illinois, writes in and says, uh, My favorite Wisconsin driftless area is the bead area fly is the bead soft hackle chocolate color. I like tungsten black beads the best with hackle tied in front of the, the bead. Can you comment on small soft hackle flies? I have your books and I hope to have you sign them someday. Fish on. Yeah, I think small I think uh, uh, small soft hackles are important. I don't think you have to go a whole lot farther down in size than 20s or 22s but they're important. Weighted ones are good, but don't forget unweighted ones, too, because an unweighted small fly, you can fish it traditionally as a wet fly, but you can also use that thing as a cripple. You can grease your leader. You can keep it closer to the top. You can fish it upstream on a dead drift, and a lot of times the fish will take that as an injured or a crippled done. If you're having trouble with, a, let's say, a blue-winged olive hatch, that might be... Uh, sort of your ace in the hole. You might be able to catch a fish by uh, fishing that fly on the surface. And obviously you can let it swing too. So, yeah, they're important and they're fun to fish. Now, he talks about uh, using tungsten beads with the hackle tied in front of the bead. That's not something I'm familiar with. Is that something that you do often? Yeah, I've done that before. I Actually, I think it's a better-looking fly if you put the hackle in front of the, the bead. And the other thing is the bead kind of holds that, that hackle out a little bit. It's As much as anything, it's personal choice, but I, I think it makes for a, a nice-looking fly. Okay, okay, good, good. Um, Chuck in, uh, in Buffalo, New York, wrote in and said, uh, Hi, Ed, when tying your BWO emerger, uh, blueing olive, how do you get the floss through the bead you selected. I ended up using uh, a small bead head for size 18. Also, is it true that you taught John Garrick how to fish? Uh, the first question, 
uh, <laughs> on the blue-winged olive emerger is it's basically I just get the beads out and I put them in a container and I pick one up in my hand. I do it an old-fashioned way and I just make sure I'm holding the bead over the table because I'm going to drop some. And all I do with the, the floss is if it starts to fray or something, I'll cut it back or I'll lick it and uh, stick it through the bead. But they're not, I, I wouldn't say they're hard to do, but sometimes it can get a little frustrating. It's, it's not Threading something an I do with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, there, there might be an easier way to do it, but... Uh, you know, I'll sit in front of the TV or turn the radio on and just string a bunch of them up, and it's yeah. not that tough. You might cut the floss at a little bit of an angle too, uh, to to get it through. The small beads aren't too bad. The extra small get a little hairy, but it's still doable. In terms of uh, John Gearock, actually, uh, He's the well. I met John Gearock in a poetry class. We were poets, but then we got into fishing. And the truth of it is, it's more that John taught me to fly fish. John got into fly fishing first, oh. and then he kind of convinced me to 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 get into it. It didn't, it didn't take me long because I realized how much fun he was having. But uh, yeah, I'll always have to be thankful to him for getting me involved in it. I might have gone that way eventually, but he got me going on it faster. Yeah, because you guys are friends from way back, huh? Yeah. How many he, years do you go back? Been, oh, probably 40, 45 uh -huh. years. I've known him a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. And we've always had writing between us. We're, we're both real interested in writing, and, and the fishing was a great place to put those skills to to use and we're just I was speaking for myself I was just lucky I was in the right place at the right time when fly fishing got popular again so I was able to kind of make a living out of it writing yeah. and guiding and everything else yeah 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 well great great thanks for the little history and friendship uh, information um, and he's no, a got... really good, yeah, he's a really good guy, too. And one thing that not everybody knows is he's a really good fly tire. Uh, oh, really? Not not everybody knows that. Yeah, he ties great flies, uh, really good, really precise flies, great fly oh. tire. Yeah, we're going yeah. uh, to be having him on the show here uh, very soon as well. So, um, yeah. Oh, nice good. You. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, we got uh, another question on the Internet. Uh, Bill Hefner um, asks, uh, do you like to use UV coatings on your patterns? I'm not, well, let's just say I don't use UV coatings, and it's not because I agree or disagree with them. I haven't even got around, although if you look at the, if you look at the data, my background's as a biologist, if you look at the data, there's really no hard evidence that indicates that trout past Trout species past the the fingerling stage are really attracted to UV, but the other side of the coin is if you have confidence in it, if you think it's working, it doesn't matter. That confidence is really important. So I'm up in the air on UV, but at this point I'm not using any UV coatings. So that's mm -hmm. the short answer. And you haven't seen any testing that has shown that the, that it makes a difference, huh? 
well, at least with trout, there might be some, it might be a little different in salt water and all, but I haven't seen any hard evidence, and I know that's controversial, and some people swear by it, but that's just my experience and, and what I've been able to dig up uh, in the scientific literature. So that's all I can say on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just looking at your book, and um, uh, I think an interesting section is uh, that you've got there is uh, in, in the tying small flies is getting down with uh, small flies. Can you talk about a, a little bit of the, the different methods you use for weighting uh, very small flies? Yeah, it's interesting because a small fly, I, I mean a small hook, will actually float on the water's surface because there's the, the surface tension will keep it up, so it can be problematical. Right now we've got some real small beads. You can get tiny tungsten beads. You can get tiny brass beads. You can get tiny uh, glass beads, and all of those have different uh, weights, so you can sort of get a fly down fast, or you can sort of have it stay up uh, in the water column. Uh, another way you can get them down is to simply put a weighted fly in your rig and then tie an unweighted or a weighted small fly as a point fly in a nymphing rig, something like that. Just use a heavier fly, or if it's legal where you live, stick a split shot on the on the leader and, and get the fly down. There's lots of ways to get them down. When it comes down to actually weighting the fly, uh, that can be difficult. You know, because on the real small hooks, you've got the bead, and then you've got to get the body on and everything else, and it can get pretty crowded. Uh, so, And I noticed you mentioned uh, quick descent dubbing. Yeah, my uh, test on quick descent dubbing did not go well for the quick descent dubbing. Oh. And what I think happens is on larger flies, you get enough of a, volume of, of that for it to sink the hook, but uh, quick descent, it's made from shredded aluminum, and uh, at least at the time when I did that test, in that shredded aluminum, you build up, when, when you put it on, you build up sort of enough bulk that it actually sort of would float the hook, so it didn't oh. work too well in my tests. <laughs> Because you got airspace, I suppose, in between the... You have airspace, and it increases the surface area. It doesn't have a lot of weight for the surface area. Yeah. I think on a larger hook that you'll, uh, you know, you, you will get uh, some more weight. But, you know, if you're doing 20s, 22s, I didn't get it to sink the hook that, that well on yeah, the well, test. Yeah, yeah. That's all in the book. You can read that yeah. test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, uh, let's see. James in Alpine, Wyoming, he writes in and says, uh, your book has been out there for a while. What recent developments in materials, techniques, and equipment might be incorporated in an updated version of tying and fishing small flies? Any well, big revelations? That, that, that actually segues into a project I'm working on now is oh. we're doing a second edition to ah. these small flies books. there It's going to be a while before it's out, so I've actually been looking into a lot of stuff. In terms of materials, there's just a ton of new hooks available that work for small flies. Uh, it's amazing. There's a ton of thread out there. There's all kinds of new threads that you can get. You can even get gel spun uh, if that's something that, that – 
it's a little hard to work with, but it has some advantages uh, on really small flies, certain small flies, like if you're trying to tie hair in. In terms of uh, techniques, uh, the techniques are basically the same. You can use small flies with some of these Euro tactics. In terms of equip, equipment, in the original book, or in the first edition of Fishing Small Flies, I, uh, I didn't have a lot to say about ultralight fly rods, the one weights, the two weights, the zero weights. And I decided to test them again. And I think there's a place for them, particularly if there's a, a hatch going, like you know there's going to be a hatch. Uh, one of the things I found was if you get one that bends all the way down into the handle, it's really interesting. You'll hook a fish. I was hooking fish 16, 17, 18 inches, and the thing would bend all the way into the handle, and the, it seemed like the fish didn't know they were hooked. I could actually guide those fish to my net faster than I could if I was fishing a four weight. Uh, but I'd get into trouble if the fish made a run. Then I was then I was in trouble. <laughs> no, no backbone. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of tough, you know. But it really surprised me. They just didn't seem to know. And a lot of times, if I got on them and and let them straight to the net, boy, I, I had them released in record time. Wow, hmm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of new stuff happening. Huh? It's it's been amazing over the past forty years how the the, the materials have advanced and evolved. Huh? Um, I know when we both started tying flies way back when, it was uh, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of materials. I, I remember going to the the craft stores and the and the you know um, the uh, sewing sh stores to get a lot of materials back then. But now it's just oh incredible. yeah yeah. Not that we still don't go there, but... <laughs> but uh, oh, there's no, there's there's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's... Uh, and small flies, I, I mean, it's always been kind of a, a subgroup of fly fishers who are really interested in it, and it depends on where you fish. I mean, I, I live near the South Platte River. That's small flies. That's why I fish small flies. And the, the hooks and, and the materials that are available to tie those flies, I mean, it's a bunch more than it was when I started, so that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Barry in Wayne, New Jersey. Um, we'll see if we can sort this, this question out here. Um, he says, Ed, you're, he's, he's posing a scenario here. You're fishing downstream close to the bank in moderate current and get a solid strike. You start to work the fish that comes off the hook. With a confident hookup, would you have hurried downstream, blowing up the area to flank the fish to change the angle of the retrieve? So he's talking about landing it, I guess, rather than losing the, the fish. If I understand this question right, I'm assuming that he's, he's fishing straight downstream and maybe he's doing a parachute cast or something, and he hooks a fish up and he's trying to play it from where he's standing. What I and I think that's going to blow the hole up anyhow. Uh, you know, by the time you fight that fish and pull it up through that, I think what I would do is if I was able to move out from the bank a little bit and get a little bit of an angle on it, I may move downstream and try to pull it out from the bank and land it that way. But uh, it might be pretty hard to not wreck that spot, especially from an upstream position. It might be hard to not 
uh, blow it up. But yeah. if I understand it, what I would do is I'd move out toward midstream if possible. Uh, I don't know. There, maybe you could get up on the bank too, and yeah. and go and run downstream on the bank if that was feasible. That might be the best way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A um, couple more questions about um, tying. We'll move on to, to fishing here. Um, what about uh, is is CDC still a one of the best? Floatants that you can use for, for small flies, or is there other materials? CDC is yes. Yeah. CDC is great. Uh, it can be a little bit expensive, but sometimes one of the difficulties with CDC is is keeping it usable, getting it dried out after you've caught a few fish. If you have the desiccant powder, that helps. You can use uh, there's some material that you can get to sort of dry it out, but what I do is I kind of reserve my CDC flies for fish that I'm having trouble catching. And for sort of general fishing, I'll, I'll use uh, snowshoe hair uh, foot flies, which are a little more durable. But CDC's uh, a big deal with small flies because there's very little bulk to it when you're tying. So uh, CDC's important. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Good. Okay, let's take uh, another quick break here, and um, and we'll be right back. We'll talk uh, more about fishing these small flies. So hang with us, folks. We'll be right back. Looking for that shot at permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray, C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Ed Engel about tying and fishing small flies. If you'd like to ask that a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, Ed, let's um, talk a bit now about, about fishing these small flies. Um, and, of course, folks, if you want to learn more about tying small flies, uh, be sure to get Ed's book. Uh, he goes into great detail on using all these different materials and uh, shows really close-up, nice photography of what, what uh, how the flies are, are being made and how they end up. So I highly recommend you checking out that book. Um, okay, on fishing small flies, uh, Ed Constantini, Wisconsin, uh, writes in and says, uh, do, do you have one, uh, he's talking about equipment here, do you have a favorite bamboo rod length and weight line that you like to use when fishing small flies? Or do you use bamboo? Uh, yeah, I do use bamboo, not as much as I used to because graphite's really gotten gotten good. But in terms of bamboo, I live in the West. I like either a, a seven foot nine inch to eight foot uh, length and four or five weight. Five weight seems to be universal, but I've got a couple of four weights I really like. If I lived on the East Coast, I, I might fish a little bit shorter rod. And I've got some seven-and-a-half-footers I really like. But if I had to make – if I had to, to have one rod 
for the West on the streams I fish, it would probably be an eight weight for a five, or an, I mean an eight foot for a five. Okay, okay. Uh, and then about uh, Malcolm Davidson in Ontario, Canada, writes in, and says, when fishing very small nymphs or mergers, how do you typically rig? Says dries are straightforward. I've used tungsten on the fly down to size 18, but haven't gone much smaller. But let's start out, you know, with his question here. Let's start out about dry flies. What what is your terminal tackle? How do you set up, and how small do you go and tip it uh, to be able to fight the fish and so forth as well? For a small fly? Yeah. Uh, for a small dry fly. Small dry fly that, first, and then we'll talk about nymphs and emergency. Uh, what I like to do is I if I tie my own leaders, and I don't have anything against store-bought ones, but the reason I tie my own leader is because I like to have a little bit stiffer butt section, and I can do that with a with a hard nylon from maybe Maxima, a chameleon hard hard nylon. And and most of the time, my leaders are anywhere from 10 to 12 feet. People think you need really, really long leaders, and you do once in a while, but if you can stick between 10 and 12 feet, they cover a lot of water. I mean, you can catch a lot of fish on a small fly, and I'll usually taper those down to a anywhere from a 5 to a 6X. I don't go to 7X unless there's no choice. A lot of times it's just getting in the right casting position and using a slack line cast that will make the 6X work fine. So that answered the question on, and I'll fish dries down to whatever I need, you know, on the surface. Yeah, yeah, whatever. but but 6, 6X tippet is, uh, is is as small as you, you like to go, ma- mainly for oh, uh, fishing, right? Yeah, I, I like a real sort of limp 6X. I, right now, you know, I'll say it, I mean, I like Trout Hunter. I think it's a real good... Uh, uh, tippet material, and I do pretty. I don't have to go much smaller than that. I mean, if I'm fishing real little stuff like 28s and 30s, well then I go to 8x because uh, oh, I have yeah. to. Can't I can't get the others through the eye. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of determines it right there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then what about uh, as he is asking about how do you rig for you know small nymphs or emergers? Um, you know. A lot of times, uh, I don't tend to fish weighted small nymphs, nymphs that have a tungsten bead on them, unless I'm hunting fish that I can see close to the the bank or in shallower water. Uh, That's when I'll use a weighted fly itself. If I'm nymph fishing, if I'm fishing the channel or something, a lot of times I'll put a weighted fly on and I'll tie a section of tippet material to the bend of the hook, and then I'll trail actually an unweighted nymph behind it on a fairly long section of material, maybe 18 inches. Uh, And my whole idea there is I want it to well up in the current like an emerger. I want it to look like it's going up and down. I don't mean the current, up and down in the water column where it actually looks like it's an emerger. So... uh, I, I don't necessarily use a lot of weighted nymphs. I, I really like to visually hunt the fish with a single nymph, and that's where uh, I, I will have just a small uh, bead on it. 
and, and then I watch the fish. The fish is the best strike indicator in the world. If he turns or if he picks something up, I set the hook because it's probably my fly. Yeah, 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 interesting. So you say if you see a turn or whatever, a lot of people talk about the white of the mouth or something. Uh, any, any other indicators that you can share with us that worked well for you? You mean in terms of watching the fish or in yeah. terms of physical? Uh, I pretty much, a lot of times they'll just do a little bit of a turn. Uh, some of it's just I, instinctive because I've been lucky. I fish clear water a lot because I fish the South Platte. But it's usually a, you'll just see a little twitch or you'll see a little turn or, you, you know, it's obvious when you see the mouth open. And it doesn't take too long. It starts to get pretty intuitive where you get a sense of where your fly is in relation to the fish, you know, how far your flies drifted downstream. But next to dry fly fishing, I think that's the most exciting fishing there is. I mean, fishing subsurface to a trout you can see is really a kick. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Always uh, always nice to be able to see those fish and, and, uh, and hunt them that way. Um, uh, Rick in Medusa, New York, writes, uh, Ed, small dry flies are hard to see. Identifying takes is not as oh identifying takes is not a big problem as knowing if they are floating and if they are drifting drag free. What do you do to overcome these issues? Uh, well, I think it's really important that that you're able to see your dry fly on the water surface because uh it's, a lot of times you'll be late on the strike if you can't see the dry fly on the water surface. Uh, having said that, a small fly is often hard to see or you can't see it. And what I'll do sometimes is my tippet section of my leader is usually 20, 25 inches long, and then it's tied to a knot, you know, at the other end. And a lot of times I'll put a tiny little bit of a strike putty on that knot and that'll let me track where that fly is about. In other words, if I see a fish come up 20 inches from that little dot or closer, I set the hook because it's probably to my fly. In terms of whether the fly's floating or not, uh, a lot of times it works better if it's not floating, if it's just below the surface a little bit. And sometimes watching that dot on the surface will give me a sense if I'm getting a drag-free drift too. So that can be real. That can be real helpful. Some people will grease their leader. They'll put some. I, I like to use sort of a pasty float, and and I'll grease my leader down to within 18, 20, 25 inches of where the fly is, and you can watch your your leader, that floating part of your leader as it moves along, and it'll identify the area where the fly is. It can even use it as a strike indicator if it stops or moves a little, set the hook that way. What kind of paste do you use for that? I use I use mucilin, uh, mucilin silicone. Yeah, it's, it's the only pasty kind of... Uh, uh, stuff that I that I know of, and you could probably put uh, gink or something like that on, but the the paste really sets that thing up. It really floats it. Yeah, somebody else was mentioning. I think there was a a loon product that some kind of 
taste, and now the name has escaped me, but... Uh, that wouldn't surprise me, because Loon makes some pretty good stuff, and yeah. I, I'm not uh, up, you know, I'm not up to date on a lot of it, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. They're, yeah. they're a good company. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kathy Croslin, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, writes, and why are small flies so often described or associated as being particularly useful with picky or tricky trout? Wouldn't the small flies work as well with other less wary fish? Or do the small flies truly have a particular appeal to more mature trout that have learned to, to hover and feed with minimal amount of expended energy? Um, and she writes also, really enjoy the common sense and conversational way you write. Uh, I, I think that uh, the small flies actually do work well on, on less wary fish. I, I do think that, that sometimes the, the larger trout, uh, you may even have to, let's say you're matching a blue-winged olive that hatched in, in the flies. Let's say they're size 20s. Sometimes if you go to a 22 or, or even smaller, maybe a 24, sometimes that will fool a larger fish. It seems like going a little bit smaller uh, will sometimes fool a fish when you're, you're fishing to a arise, but I think that if they're taking small flies, it comes down to what they're eating, and if they're taking small flies, uh, the big guys and the little guys will be taking it uh, the same. It's, it's, the that's, same, that's yeah. Been my, it's, it's been my experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. You know, we, we often want to think the bigger fish are, are smarter, um, but in the Thick of things of many flies in the water, um, it's, it's probably hard for them to tell, right? Right. I do think that the larger fish are more sensitive to drag on the fly. So you've got to be okay. careful that you get that, that drag-free drift. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, li the little guys are, are tend to be a little more reckless. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, reckless. Well, just like when I was a teenager. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, we did things we don't want to talk about today, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, uh, okay, and then we have uh, Peter in Sonoma, California. He says, are you just targeting small hatches like midges and pseudos, uh, or do you fish small flies all or most of the time? Are you finding other mayflies like, say, a PMD in a hook size 20? That fish are targeting. Uh, what questions there for you? But. You're basically what I'm doing is I'm matching what's hatching, and are are matching what's available to the fish. And since my home water, since I I live near the South Platte River, there's going to be small flies on that, and I don't necessarily necessarily seek them out. I mean, if I go to a small stream up in the mountains here, those all those fish are opportunistic feeders, and, you know, I'll, I'll fish size 12s or, or size 14s like everybody else because I don't need the smaller fly. But on spring right. creeks, some of these tailwaters, you you got to have those things. And PMDs, I find anywhere from 16 to 20s. But it's it's more for me... To me, the thrill is is trying to figure out what the fish is is eating and to beat it to beat it at its own game to yeah. show it something that looks like what it's eating and fool the fish into eating it. Yeah, there's uh, I can't I forget who I was talking to the other day, but it was uh, 
um, you know, there's a lot of fly fisher, fishers out there that uh, consider getting that take and that hookup uh, the thrill. Uh, not fighting the fish, uh, you know, not letting it go, uh, but just doing the fooling. <laughs> you know, that is the, the accomplishment right there. Um, and it sounds like that excites you as much as... Oh, I, I know fishermen that cut the hook off. Yeah. And, and they, just, <laughs> they, they just let the fish grab it, and then that's enough for them. I, I haven't gotten to that point. I still like to hold the fish and release the fish. And there's something to be said for playing a fish well but for me what really rings my chimes is if you really look at the way fish rise to an artificial a lot of times they'll take even though that artificial matches whatever's hatching really closely they'll take that artificial fly a little bit different it'll be a little flashier rise or something but if you get the fish that comes up and is taking your artificial exactly like it's taking the naturals, I think that's the ultimate. Yeah, uh, you've done your job. And that's a real fine point, but if you really watch how they take it, uh, I'm sure a lot of the people listening have noticed that it's just a little different than, than what they're, how they're taking the naturals. It's almost like that artificial's bothering them somehow. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, Steve in Northern California writes, uh, how does tippet size sink rates on smaller nymphs. Is there a significant difference in sink rates between, say, 4X and 5X on the same weighted fly? I don't think there's a real significant difference. I think that the flexibility of, of the material is probably more important. You just get a real flexible tippet, and, and it will probably sink the same. And for small flies, I'd be looking more at 5 or 6X for for the nymph, but uh, you know, you figure there's a thousandth of an inch difference between this stuff, so I, I don't think it has a big effect. What about fluorocarbon versus mono? Oh, this is where I'll get into trouble because <laughs> I, 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 it seems like everybody likes fluorocarbon, yeah. and and I'll use I I like fluorocarbon. I use it in lakes, but I don't use it. The only time I use it in rivers is if I'm fishing where I know that there's a, a real abrasive uh, rubble on the bottom of the stream, if I know there's a place where the fish can rub me off. Uh, other than that, uh, I just pretty much use nylon. Uh, people say that fluorocarbon sinks. Well, something that not everybody talks about is that nylon gets waterlogged, and it sinks, too, after a while. So it'll get wet, and it, it'll sink. Uh, I think the fish can see fluorocarbon under the water surface, and I think they can see nylon under the water surface. I don't know if they know what it is in terms of spooking them, uh, but I just haven't found that fluorocarbon has made that much difference for me except in those special conditions where uh, I think a fish will, will, will rub me off. Uh, but I would say... You know, the majority of guides that I know, and I guided for over 20 years, swear by fluorocarbon. So maybe I'm not getting something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. I was reading uh, John Olsh's book on permit fishing, um, and um, he talks about uh, uh, leader, you know, leaders uh, tippet flash under the water spooking permit. And I'm wondering if that's a, a factor uh, 
in, in with trout fishing as well of getting flash up, whether it's fluorocarbon or nylon, you know, either one. It, you know, like you said, you don't know. You said you don't know if they know what it is, but do you think do you think that we get flash on these these fine? Uh, I think 5X? it's possible. I I, I it, it could be possible because you know sometimes I can see it, you know, under the water surface. I I just I don't have any. I haven't had any experiences that would indicate to me it's spooking fish. I've got better ways to lose fish than flash of the uh, the mono or the the fluorocarbon. Yeah, <laughs> like I could drag the drag the fly or something, but it's hard to tell. But the bottom line is, if fishing fluorocarbon gives you confidence, if you think it gives you an edge, that's what you should use because you get to a certain point in your fly fishing where your confidence in a pattern or your confidence in your terminal tackle is really important. I, I mean, because if you're confident in a fly, you're going to fish it longer, you're going to concentrate more when you fish it. it, makes a huge difference. So I just tell people rely on their instincts. If certain uh, product or material or fly seems to work for you, go with it. Yeah, I was just going to ask you why confidence plays such a, an important factor, but you just answered it, uh, you know, by uh, fishing it longer, you know, uh, paying more attention, being focused. Because uh, you hear that again. You can hear that from all kinds of fly fishers out there, you know, confidence, confidence. got to have confidence. Uh, but what if you have confidence in the wrong stuff? <laughs> Where does that put you? <laughs> I never, I never I mean, thought about that, but uh, I mean, if a guy is just, just learning, he, he could have confidence in, in the totally the wrong thing. And, and uh, I think we're talking about more of a mature confidence, where you've been around a while, and the reason yeah. you have confidence is because somehow it worked over yeah. time. And, and I mean, it's it's that classic story. It's it's like you've got this fly that always works for you, and you're catching fish. So you give that fly to your buddy, and he doesn't do any good. You let him fish the exact spot you're fishing, and he doesn't do any good. Well, he doesn't have the same level of confidence. It's uh, yeah. It's a funny a thing. Few... I mean, Go ahead. it's just funny. It's just funny how that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, there's a couple of flies in my box that if all else fails, uh, you know, like a hare's ear or a pheasant tail, you know, that, I mean, I've been catching fish on those since I was 13 years old, you know. It's like uh, I have a lot of confidence in those flies, you know, and uh, and for good reason. They work, you know. But uh, Well, it's funny, yeah. too, because why is it that those flies have stood the test of time and there's other patterns that will work for two or three years and then they right. just don't seem to work as well? But there's certain patterns that have just stood the test of time. I mean, for my tailwater and in Spring Creek fishing, I bet you that I could get by with with ten patterns almost any place I fished. But you know, I like tying flies, so I got boxes and boxes of flies. But there are certain patterns that just seem to always work. You, you just named a few of them. Yeah, and it's you know again maybe it's that confidence confidence factor because you hear guides you know saying, oh yeah, well we were fishing that. Uh, black zebra last year but it's not working anymore you know the, the fish are onto it and now we're using the red zebra or something you know what i mean it's uh and i'm wondering you know 
is that really making a difference? I mean, you used to guide there, so how, how did you feel about that based upon what you just said about your handful of flies that have been successful? Yeah, well, it's it's hard. It's funny because it's because I understand that. I understand that the fish go off these. They seem to go off certain fly patterns. But, you know, we're talking about the fish almost like they're people and they're intelligent. You go, well, they went off the fly. You know, does a fish really figure out a pattern and avoid that pattern? That's really hard to say. Uh, it's, it's one of the great mysteries, you know. <laughs> if somebody figures it out, yeah. uh, give me a call. But there are patterns that just seem to go off after a few years. But like I said, the hare's ear, the uh, the uh, pheasant tail, I don't know what it is with those flies, but they just keep, keep on, on going. working. Yeah, keep on yeah. working. Yeah. Okay, let's take uh, another quick break here, and, um, and we'll be right back, and we'll finish up here with uh, fishing small flies. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Upper Delaware in New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. Uh, fly Fishers International's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you are not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Ed Engel about tying and fishing small flies. If you'd like to ask Ed a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, and uh, send us the question, and we'll see if we can get it answered here on the show tonight. Uh, speaking of which, a um, question came in when uh, this is on the Internet. Ed uh, Constantini, thanks for all your questions tonight, Ed. Um, I always appreciate you guys sending them in. Uh, when fishing the rising fish, do you prefer to present your fly from above, below, or across? It depends on the situation, but uh, if it sets up right, and I think casting position is really important, and, and people talk about cast, they talk about equipment, they talk about fly patterns, but where you stand in the water for the presentation is really important. And if I have my druthers, I, I like to present a downstream and across reach cast is, is really effective. That's, that's my favorite way to fish it. Everybody should know the reach cast. That's one of the most important casts there is, and all it is is an aerial mend. It's really simple. But if I, have, if I can set it up, the downstream and across reach cast really works for me. Okay, okay. Um. Let's see if we've got any more that have come in. Uh, no, nope, not at the moment. Um, okay, we've got um, uh, Phil in California, Kentucky. 
What factors converge to make big trout interested in small food items? Uh, doesn't the need to consume large numbers of small items weigh against this in the cost versus benefit sense? I think uh, San Juan River in northwestern uh, New Mexico is a perfect example of this. There's like small midges, midge pupa, constantly drifting through there. And I think if the fish are in relatively slow-moving water and there's just this constant, constant stream of these smaller insects, they can beat that metabolic equation. They can eat more calories than they use up chasing those calories down. I, I did Years ago, I did stomach samples down there, and it was amazing. I mean, you'd get these 17, 18, 20-inch fish, and they're just full of size 22 midge larva and midge pupa. That's all that was in those fish. Obviously, they'd eat a San Juan worm, a, a aquatic anilant, when they got one, but a staple of their diet was all of these midges. So I think it has to do uh, with the how fast the current's going and the amount of those small foods available. Yeah, and then from what you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing that you know, you've got this large fish there, and he's probably not moving a whole lot to get all those midges. Um, in other words, he's not going to move three feet to get a midge, but he, he may move back and forth and collect 20 of them in a matter of minutes just because of his positioning and the amount of food in the water. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I, I think they expend an amazingly small amount of energy eating those, because I've watched them eating those midges, and they'll just be suspended in the water column, and they're moving a little bit back and forth. You see their mouths opening. I, I think it's almost uh, zero calories in terms of, of output. So uh, I think that's how they make that equation work. Mm -hmm. Okay. And these um, streams, these tailwaters in Spring Creeks are really prolific in, mm -hmm. in small flies, in midges, and in, in smaller mayflies. There are tons of tons of biomass in them. Likewise, uh, South Platte? South Platte, uh, tailwaters typically in the west and spring creeks. Just uh, They're just insect factories, and that makes them trout factories. Right, right. Um, Dino in Michigan uh, asks, uh, can you discuss drag on surface versus wet fly type swings? Um, and he says, upstream, across stream, and downstream approaches. What is consistent? What changes? Uh, midge, caddis, and mayfly imitation with different attack. He's got a bunch of questions here. So let's just start at the beginning. Drag on the surface versus wet fly type swings. I don't quite understand that. I mean, okay. I, don't think, I don't think drag on the surface is a good thing necessarily. I, I mean, you, you might want to twitch a pattern. Uh, in fact, it can be really important to twitch a dry fly, but to actually let it drag or swing, I don't think that's good. In terms of a wet fly, yeah, I think if you can get it below the surface and let it swing in a more traditional presentation. But that's sort of that's the only thing I really understand about that that question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it says upstream, across stream, and downstream approaches. What is consistent and what changes? Uh, I'm assuming he's talking about casting position. Uh, I think that 
and if, if you do the classic upstream presentation to a rising trout, not directly upstream, maybe slightly off upstream, I think you can eliminate 50 or 60 percent of the causes of, of drag. An across stream presentation can be effective. It, let's say you're fishing dry flies, but it's got some built-in possibilities of drag. Uh, on that. You've got to be real careful. That's where your reach cast comes in. When it comes to a, a downstream presentation or a downstream approach, the main thing there is, number one, uh, the trout may be able to spot you more easily because their heads are pointed into the current and you're upstream. And the other thing is you're at an adverse uh, hooking angle. So you've sort of got to let the fish come up take the fly and go back down. And a lot of times that's pretty hard to do when you see that mouth come up. There's a tendency mm -hmm. to strike a little too quick. So you got to be on to that. The other difficulty, too, is uh, that a lot of times you don't, you, you don't have a lot of slack in the line. And if the fish turns downstream, if you're not careful, he'll break you off. The advantage is the first thing the, the trout sees is the fly. So... You, you know, if you take all these other things into consideration and sort of neutralize those, then it can be yeah. a great a great place to, to be positioned. Yeah, I think you answered that very well. He also asked, uh, midge, caddis, and mayfly imitation, what differences, uh, different tactics apply as when fishing those? Uh, on midges... A lot of midges, it's interesting. If you look at midges, a lot of times a midge, when it gets near the surface, it just pops straight out of the shuck. It doesn't stay on the surface much at all unless you have cold water. There's some species that will lie horizontal. So in terms of midges, I'm going to be fishing midge pupa, pupa that sort of uh, float, hang vertically in the surface film because that's where they're, they're really vulnerable. In terms of, of caddis, uh, small caddis, uh, can be really challenging. A lot of times I'll fish those in a gang, almost like a wet fly. And I'll be honest, I, I've had trouble. There's a black caddis fly hatch on the South Platte River in South Park and, uh, that thing drives me crazy every year, so I haven't quite figured that out. In terms of, what's the other one, mayflies? Mayfly. In terms of mayflies, a lot of mayflies are going to spend a lot more time on the water's surface, and you can get a classic dry fly presentation where you can present an adult and have it on, on the, the surface. A lot of times I'll trail an emerger pattern behind that done imitation, though, because fish will really key on emerger patterns or anything that looks like a, a cripple. I mean, they're just, they're opportunists, and if it looks like it can't get away, they'll take it. Take it, yeah, yeah. And Dino's last question, Dino always has a lot of questions, <laughs> and I appreciate them. Uh, any seasonal difference that affect your approaches with small flies? Uh, let's see. In the winter time, see, I guess there isn't. In the winter time, of course, where I live, it's just all midge fishing. Right. And uh, I don't, I can't think of anything offhand that I okay. do differently. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of anything offhand. Okay. Peter in Sonoma, California, uh, please talk 
of your experience with micro caddises. I never fish a caddis pattern smaller than a size 18. This yeah, I just kind of talked about that. Yeah. yeah, these black caddis. One of the things you're going to find on some caddis species, and I've noticed it on the small ones, and, and it took me years to, not years, but it took me a while to figure this out, is you'll see surface disturbances. You'll see sort of boils and rolls. And you think that something's hatching on the water surface, like a classic uh, caddis fly hatch. But if you look at it more closely, there's no insects or there's very few insects in the air. And I was fishing this thing, fishing this thing, and I got out of the water, and my waders were covered uh, with adults. They were covered with adult caddis. And I came to find that those were the female diving caddis. Some species of uh, caddis flies, the females dive under the water surface, deposit their eggs, and then pop back out. And, and the fish really key on those. And so I started swinging wet flies. I started swinging gangs of wet flies and nymph fishing them, and it helped a little bit. But I'm still a long way from figuring out micro caddis. Uh, and I don't fish them much below size 20 uh, mm -hmm. patterns. Okay, okay. Um, Chris Burns asked about, can you discuss the basic midge life cycle and how you use their emergence behavior to catch more fish during the stages of the hatch, water type, stream location, et cetera? So kind of a similar question. Well, yeah, basic life cycle is you have larva, and, well, let's just say you have larva, you have pupa, and then you have the adult. And that's kind of the basic cycle. The, the larva is kind of interesting because typically they're not that available to the trout. I mean, their job is to, you know, be in a tunnel in the silt, be under the rocks, uh, not be available to the trout. But they, uh, sometimes they'll have a drift. They'll get into the drift. A bunch of them will release and just get into the drift. And I know that the trout eat larvae imitation. So I don't know what the deal is there. What I do know is when the larvae mature to the pupa stage, that's when they are vulnerable. That's when they're going to come to the water surface. That's when they're going to hang in the surface film, usually in slower water types, and then they'll pop into the air. And if you can fish a suspender or hanger style midge at that point, uh, a lot of times you'll do do some good, and you'll just see these real subtle rises. But once again, a pupa imitation, a larva imitation fished in a nymphing rig, I like to fish an unweighted pupa or larva imitation uh, with weight in front of it, either a split shot if it's legal or a weighted fly, and let that thing move up and down in the, the water current. In terms of adults, I don't do that well on adults midge imitations. Once in a while I'll catch something, but I think most of the action's on pupas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah that, uh, water. Go ahead. No, no, that's okay. Um, so, Bill Atkinson in New Mexico asks, um, this kind of a follow-up to that, if fishing dry dropper, in fishing uh, a dry dropper with a small emerger, what's the best way to get that dropper to stay in the surface film? Uh, for example, plural versus mono grease, no grease, uh, op optimal length of the tip it off the dry. I think, I think a small emerger 
if it's unweighted, if you've got a size 22 fly, and let's say that you've got that, uh, uh, well, actually, well, if it's a small emerger, to me a small emerger means it's not weighted. It's in the surface film. And I think it'll stay close enough to the surface film that you don't have to worry about that. In terms of how far to uh, fish it behind the dry fly, that can be kind of interesting because I've noticed that, uh, let's say that, it's a huge hatch. Let's it's a trico spinner faller. It's a huge midge hatch. A lot of times I like to fish my emerger or, or whatever imitation I'm fishing closer to the dry fly because then both the flies are in my visual field and I may be watching the dry fly, but I'll see the fish take the the emerger or the smaller fly. If I've got it eighteen inches away from that dry fly, I may not see it happen. And it's amazing how fast a fish can come up, take that fly, and reject it, even on the surface. It's just like all, all you hear about nymphing. So you might want it a little closer if it's a real heavy hatch. Fluoro and mono we kind of talked about. I think it's personal choice. In terms of grease or no grease, I would tend to use grease if I was just fishing the emerger. I don't think I would use grease on that section of tippet material that's directly, if I've got a dry fly in there too. I, I think you've got enough flotation. Yeah, yeah, okay. A couple more questions. James in Alpine, Wyoming says, I have your book and I could not put it down until I read it cover to cover. I also reread it every year, a sign of a great book. <laughs> so that's nice of him to say. And um, uh, can you describe your approach uh, to the trico hatch with small flies top to bottom? Uh, first thing I do on the trico hatch is uh, typically the females uh, hatch first thing in the morning. The males have hatched overnight, and they're already around in the brush or something. The females hatch pretty early in the morning. I like to get to the river uh, when those duns, when those females come off, because sometimes uh, – You'll, you'll do pretty well fishing the trout. The trout are sitting there. They're waiting for those females to hatch, and a lot of times they're lined up in feeding lanes, and, and they're set to go. So I, I want to be there. You just, you just got to get up early and, and be on the water. I don't fish many nymph imitations anymore. I, I get up to the, the, the duns, and I'll fish dry flies. Sometimes I'll fish a trailing uh nymph imitation behind the dun. If things are, are slower, I'm having a hard time. Eventually, the females hatch. They get into the air. The males go up, and you get these big mating swarms, and you get the spinnerfall. Spinnerfall comes usually before noon on a lot of the streams I fish. And in terms of the spinnerfall, this is one of those situations where you're getting uh, a ton of spent spinners on the water surface. And the the problem is how do you get the trout to eat your fly right. in particular? Because you've got thousands of naturals on the surface. And it sounds pretty simplistic, but I think the best way that, that you can get the fish to eat your fly is find a pod of trout that are rising regularly, pick a fish maybe on the outside, and get as many good drag-free drifts over that trout per minute as you can. 
the more times you can show that trout your fly and on a reasonable drift, a good drift, I think the better chance you have of catching it. Uh, you can time the feeding rhythm and all that, but I think the most important thing is just getting that spent spinner over that fish as many times as you can. And the one other thing we talked about is move your spent spinner imitation. I like to fish a, uh, a dun, uh, trico dun, and the spent spinner behind it, and I'll put that spent spinner just eight inches behind it because then I can see them both. Right, right. Yeah, good plan. Uh, last question, Don in Montana. Um, he says, could you give a detailed discussion on uh, regarding uh, hooking, playing, and landing a good-sized fish, which took a small fly and a very fine tippet, 5X max, but mostly finer diameter, and not causing the fish excessive harm from prolonged stress? What I like to do is a lot of the streams I fish, I'm not fishing real far out because one of the things with small flies is I want to be able to see the fly, so I'm pretty close in. And sometimes, I wouldn't even say sometimes, I'd say the majority of times I can hook the fish up and a lot of times I can move it in pretty close to me almost immediately. And if I can get it in kind of close, then it'll dive, it'll, it'll start trying to dog me a little bit, and then what I want to do is I want to try to get that fish to shake its head, because that really wears the fish out, and that might mean I'll flip my rod upstream, turn the fish, and I'll get a bunch of head shakes, I'll maybe flip the rod downstream, get a bunch of head shakes, usually doesn't take long to wear the fish out, and I can get it to, to, to net on that. The other thing to do on these larger fish, or any fish, is set your drag before you start fishing. If you start fooling around with your drag when you're in the middle of the fight on this fish, almost invariably you'll either turn it down too tight, you'll break the fish off, or you'll turn it so loose you have trouble controlling the fish. So in a nutshell, the key to me is try to get the fish in close early on, and keep it there if you can. Uh, if it makes runs, well, you'll just have to play the runs, but try to keep the fish across from you or upstream from you and close in, and then turn its head, get it to shake, and shake its head, and you'll probably be able to get it in pretty fast. Uh, if it's a real big fish and you've got somebody who can help you net it, you can get it in even faster, and you can blame that person if you lose it. <laughs> there you go. Blame the buddy. <laughs> that's right. Always blame the buddy. Okay. Well, that's a good note to end on. We're, we're run out of time here, uh, Ed. Uh, but hang with me uh, just a bit longer. We're going to give away some of these prizes and uh, and your books. Uh, I'd like to help have you help me with that. So we're going to be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International, a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and then we're also going to be giving away um, copies of Ed's books, Tying Small Flies and Fishing Small Flies courtesy of uh, Stackpole Books. Check Stackpole out at uh, stackpolebooks.com. Um, the Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry has united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org to learn more about how you can get involved. 
Again, savebristolbay.org. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. Uh, you can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. But now it's time to give away a few prizes. Uh, the winners of our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late uh, now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on your chance to win uh, some of these incredible prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we're going to give away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. If you're not a member, be a member. A uh, great organization to support. So let me uh, fire up my computer here, and looks like the first uh, the winner for that is Bob Hepstenstall, Hepstenstall in Alberta, Canada. So Bob, uh, congratulations on winning that membership to the Fly Fishers International. I, I know you'll enjoy it. Uh, next up is a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, uh, and you can learn more about that from amatobooks.com. Amato Books has many books on fly fishing as well as periodicals. Uh, check them out, amatobooks.com. And our winner for that is Bernie Robidart. Bernie Robidart in Alabama. So, uh, Bernie, congrats on that. Hope you're a fly tire. If you're not, you can learn how by reading the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Uh, so enjoy that. And now we'll give away uh, Ed's books. We're going to give away... Uh, tying small flies and fishing small flies. So we're going to have a first and second place winner tonight. Uh, and the question, um, let's see here. We'll make this a two-part question so it's a little bit more difficult. Um, the uh, Ed mentioned a type of cast that's very important to him and that everybody should know. I want to know what kind of cast that is. And then I also want to know what brand of tippet did he mention early on in the, uh, in the show. There's a brand of tippet he had mentioned that he really likes. So two-part question. Give me both those answers. And the first two that do that uh, will win a book. First person gets tying small flies. Second person gets fishing small flies. So let's see how carefully they took notes here, Ed, and uh, I'm just refreshing my queue here, waiting for someone to answer, and then we'll see if they get it right here. Okay, I think we may have our first winner. Um, and... Um, We've got Reach Cast and Trout Hunter. Is that correct, Ed? That's it. That's it. So Ed Edward Constantini in Houlton, uh, uh, Wisconsin, uh, you're our first winner. And let's look for our second winner. And uh, looks like we have our second winner. He says, Downstream Reach Cast and Trout Hunter. 
Victor Hahn in Golden, Colorado, you're our second winner. So congratulations, gentlemen. Uh, we'll send those books out to you. And um, thanks for paying attention and, and playing with us tonight. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, Ed, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Uh, I know it takes a lot of time and energy to do these things, but uh, we really appreciate it and you sharing all your great knowledge with us tonight. I enjoyed it. Yeah, good, good. And uh, hopefully, uh, folks, you've found the archive on our website. If you haven't, there's a couple of links to it on our homepage and links at the bottom of every page. Check that out. Go in the archive and type in a keyword. You'll be surprised what you find. We've got over 175 shows, I believe, in the archive now. So look around. Lots of education to be had there. Our next broadcast will be on June 6th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, we're going to interview Bob Dye, and our topic for the show will be fly fishing the Colorado River and tributaries. Uh, Bob is a well-respected and seasoned guide on the middle Colorado River near Kremling, Colorado, and he wades and floats the river almost every day and knows how to fish it. Join us as Bob takes us on a journey uh, to learn how to best fish this famous river. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Watermaster, Baja Fly Fishing Company for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. And that's it. Good night, everyone. And